suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. Despite the reputation of their homeland, some are remarkably thin-skinned. Some seem to have multiple lifespans. A few were once thought to be extinct in the region. Others have been observed being sacrificed by their own. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch question and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. We're up to episode 166 and we're recording on the evening of... Thursday, 27th of September 2018, I am your host, Trevor the Iron Fist. This is a podcast about news and politics, mainly in Australia, but also important events around the world. We look at what's happening. Is it part of a larger picture? Is there something else going on? Do we, you know, what are the, what are the movements happening here? And we try to explain it. So with me, as usual, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day Trevor, g'day Paul, g'day listeners. And tonight I've got a shout out to our special beer sponsor, Was. Tonight, <laughs> Was, I'm drinking a Bridge Road Brewers Robust Porter. It is very nice. Thank you very much again. Thanks, Was. And that's tw- uh, Paul the 12th man. How are you going, guys? How are, hi, everyone. We're all good. And Robust is a good name for that beer. It's, it's, it's really very good, there. isn't it? Yeah. And while we were getting set up for this podcast, the 12th man and I learned that Scott was a beer brewer, <laughs> amateur, but he was pretty serious about it yeah. by the sounds of it yeah. and used to make chocolate porter as yeah. well. He used to make used to make a chocolate porter. Um, it was quite mm. all right. Um, I didn't really like it all that much. I think that was more my brew partner. I loved it. But um, we made a very good Carlsberg clone, actually, and that was what we had on tap in in my place all the time was Carlsberg. So right. When you had, say on tap, you had a sort of um, a what used to be a, an external water tank as your as your vat. No, you? not quite. No, it was it, it was just um you had it all set up. You know, it was just you uh, fermented in those fermenters that you see in the shopping centres that you mm. buy there. All those barrel shaped things. Mm. Yeah. A yeah. keg. Yeah, yeah, and then then after that you'd. You'd, well, you'd, okay, the whole thing started off, you would grind up the mash and that sort of stuff. You'd put it into a mash tun. You'd run hot water through it to take the um, sugars and everything out of the out of the mash. And then that would then go into the fermenters where you'd ferment them with yeast and that sort of thing. And then you'd uh, tip that into a uh, keg that you'd uh, gas up. Yeah. It was great fun. Was, was there any sort of... Um Sort of r- ritual or superstitious rites. Um, oh yeah, performed we we, the... we did used to pray to the beer gods. Oh, yes, yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> at the beginning of every brew season, we used to pray to the beer gods and sacrifice virgins, that sort of thing. So. Virgins. Yes. <laughs> well, given the given the numbing effect of beer and alcohol, <laughs> it might be time to restart your hobby, Scott, because there's a lot going on that is requiring. An aesthetic from my point of view. It might help us to get through the coming weeks. There is. So we're going to be talking uh, initially about school funding and our letters to the editor campaign and 
And then a bunch of other things. Not a lot of good news stories in there, I don't think. No, but, there's, uh, there's not a lot of good news this week. No. Is that why we drink during the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Right, dear listener, since we last spoke to you, actually, look, we're being a little bit self-indulgent here. If, if you're a first-time listener, normally we jump into the topics a bit sooner than this, but I will digress just before we do. And I was at a function on Saturday where these friends of ours had bought a property in the um, sort of near Mount Tambourine, sort of the back of Mount Tambourine and the valley behind there, and... It was a bit of a sort of a get-together. Some people camped, we didn't. But um, one of those events where I didn't know many people there. And so everyone's sitting around in camp chairs and pulled up my camp chair and sat beside two guys and thought, well, I wonder what sort of conversation will occur here. And shout out to Wilkes and Tim. And can you believe it? But Wilkes studied to be an Augustinian Catholic priest for six years before quitting and is now an avowed atheist. And Tim is in Toowoomba and is a member of the Liberal Party and is witnessing David Van Gend and the rest of them as they they pull apart his beloved Liberal Party. So... I three of us, feel his pain. So the three I of us had a great conversation for about three hours and really enjoyable. So, so yeah, when I sat down and I, and you know, in the first five minutes, I'd gleaned that much from them, and I thought, well, I'm going to have a good afternoon here, <laughs> and I did. So there we go. Did you tell them about the podcast? I did. So hopefully, hopefully they're listening. Yeah. yeah. Right. Let's get into it, dear listener. Um, school funding, Scott Morrison announced that he was throwing $4.2 billion at private schools and no surprise really. Um, And you talk to people about this and they really fall into two camps, don't they? You've, You've got the people who are quite vehemently opposed to it and the others who are kind of, well, what's it matter? You know, if people pay their taxes, they should be able to pay a little bit extra on top of their taxes to get what they want as, you know, they pay their taxes, they're entitled to a, an amount of right. education. And if they want to throw a bit of money on top, well, why shouldn't they be able to? Is the sort of sentiment that you get. And um, it requires a bit of explaining to people to sort of say, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> because... Um, well, I shared a link with you and it ended up at a few different places, 12th Man, but one of them was, you know, we have a public transport system where the idea is we subsidise it and we say to people, we want you to use this public transport system, buses, trains or whatever. We don't say to people, oh, the money that was allocated to you for that transport system, you can now use towards, you know, a private transport system of a car or whatever. I mean, if you don't like the system, you pay for yourself your own car for the whole amount. You want to opt out of the system? Opt out. Um, You want a private security guard for some reason? We don't say, here's a policeman and you pay the extra. We say, no, you go and pay the whole thing for a private security guard. Um, you know, if we were to do that on all sorts of government services, and we see that happening with with the private health system where it's this bastardised system now that John Howard has created 
where you've got part sort of public and part private and it's just leading to an obscene result. So it's a difficult concept because people think I've paid my fair share of taxes for an amount of education. What they don't appreciate is that um, what you're doing then is you're setting up two systems and in the elite system, only people with money can be there and the disadvantaged people can't be in that system because they're disadvantaged. So the the struggle street, the kids with problems and whatever, all the hard to teach kids all end up in the public system. And we talk when we talk about the average cost of educating people, the the public system gets the hard cases and the private system gets the easiest cases, yet they want the average of 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 the average cost of educating a student allocated to them when really uh, that's unfair. So there's a whole heap of reasons. Um, gentlemen, before I launch into my golden speech and <laughs> you know, chip in with what you want to say about Scott Morrison. Well, you know, this idea that where people think they're entitled to have their taxes go to their choice of schooling it's it's very much like the example you gave of, of transportation where, you know, the guy driving his Mercedes to his, his corporate office could claim that his taxes should subsidise his Mercedes, you know. Because he's Why not should... using the bus. Yeah. A trivial example, I was uh, cycling to work a few years ago on a, a very clearly council-signed de- uh, and designated cycle path and it was it was a section that was clearly signed as only for bicyclists, not for pedestrians. Some sections are for both, but this was clearly signed only for cyclists. There was a woman walking along, and, of course, I had the temerity to to say to her as I cycled past, uh, this is only for cyclists. And she yelled out at me, I'm a taxpayer and I've got a right to walk along here. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Yeah, it's good. So there you go. People really believe that they're entitled to demand that their taxes are used for their personal benefit rather than to serve the community, which is what governments are about, isn't it? Yes. It's about allocating our taxes to serve the general community, not to serve individual people uh, in, in in the specific area that they want it. Mm. Mm. And, and anyway, I mean... What about what about countries where public schooling is the norm for virtually everybody, regardless that, that, of class? That would be every other country except Australia. Well, you know, France. Uh, I think Finland is often touted as one of the countries with the you know really high quality education system. United States of America, indeed. We are a standout in this in the amount of private school education we have. We are way out of whack. Mm with the rest of the world. The attitude we have in this country to private school education, when when other countries look at us, it's like when we look at America with their gun control and we go, you guys, what are you doing? Are you crazy? That's not, that's not how a system works. Nobody does that. Why don't you change it? And we are in the same predicament yes. with private school funding where culturally it's now been since 1960, so not that long in the scheme of things, mm. it's been embedded into our culture now where we expect that as the norm. But 
anywhere else in the world in a civilised country looks mm. at us and go, you guys are mad. Exactly. But yeah. look, there's also the, the, the element of nation building. If you want people to feel like they belong to a common community, sending them to school together is one of the easiest and best ways to build a sense of uh, unity and social cohesion, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If you split the children up into these little separate camps based on religious affiliation or or relative uh, economic uh, prosperity, mm. then you, you're splitting the whole country into these little uh, cells, aren't you? It's extremely divisive. Very divisive and very, very bad for social cohesion, I think. Yeah, I agree. It's... The whole thing makes no sense. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous that you had a situation where you had a Liberal government come out and they had a program which was going to deny the Catholic education sector the special deal. Shorten got up during the Batman by-election and said, we stand shoulder to shoulder with the bishops. The Catholic education, whatever it was, started funding robocalls in the in the seat and the Labor Party won that seat. It's crazy that Labor didn't just jump on the Tory bandwagon and say, okay, that's fine, we're with you. It's despicable that they didn't. I know. There's a Labor <laughs> government, they're to blame for what's happened. Absolutely the, they are. The, 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 the Catholic... Have played them off against each other exactly, and so, Shorten gave into that. He did. He gave into that, and yep. he did it for base political purposes. Yep, Very to base. win to win Batman to win the Catholic vote exactly, and that made no sense whatsoever because of those people that call themselves Catholics, most of them don't give a toss. Yep, <laughs> you know, about there's... Catholicism, but they do give a toss about their special privilege of for their funding, of for funding their schools. of their school, yeah. so that they can. Keep well, pay as minimal extra fee as possible, but keep the riffraff out. That's exactly. what they care about. And wouldn't you think, after this scandalous, this scandalous revelations about clerical abuse of children, that people would be keeping their children as far away from the Catholic Church as they could possibly there's, get? There's them. no clerics left in them. Is that you know? Yes, but there see. is guilt by association. Yeah, you know, I mean, they're still they're, the same crew, the same crew that have been brainwashing children for. Hundreds of years with these well, fantastic stories about this spirit overlord watching well, us. Well, the same brainwashing has gone on where people think, oh, if my if I send my kid to a private school, they'll get a better result than if I sent them to a public school. Yeah. And it's, it's bullshit. bullshit. Yeah, it is complete bullshit. It is. So, um, you know, you're wasting your money if you're sending a kid to private school for that reason. And think how much better our public schools could be potentially mm. if the government funded them properly and stop pretending, stop buying votes by funneling money away from where it should be into private schooling and f- properly fund the, you know, decent secular public school systems. Yeah. So it could be very good. So there's a formula that they use where they're looking at the socioeconomic status of the of the community that is attending a school and they decide looking at their wealth whether there's a needs base for money for these private schools. And what's happened is it was previously done just based on the socioeconomic uh status of of the vicinity of the area around, say, the little primary Catholic school. 
but new data is available now where they can actually look at the income of the families themselves attending the school, not just the area. And guess what? The result is that they'll get less money because <laughs> that's the way it works. And so of this money, this $4 billion, $4.6, $718 million is to soften the blow for these rich private Catholic schools who will be getting less money because now the formula is more accurate. That's In other words, have a formula and then ignore the formula and give them money anyway. Yes, to soften the blow. Well, to buy votes. How how long is this $781 million going to hang around for? Because I suspect... It's for 10 years, cover a 10-year period, I think. Okay, at the end of 10 years, if the three of us are still sitting here, well, I tend to be, but you know, <laughs> I hope you go home in them, you know, periodically. <laughs> what is the plan for us? If, if the three of us are still sitting here, I suspect in ten years there'll be another deal that will then extend that money for another ten years. Oh God, there'll I hate be to think more of it. vote buying. So there you go, endlessly into the future. So we've got new stats. We can be accurately determining what the income is of these people to give an accurate needs-based assessment and the government says, oh, that's going to be a bit tough on these rich families to suddenly lose some money. So here's $718 million. This is the thing that really sticks in my throat was that they are softening the blow for wealthy individuals and wealthy families. But, but, But here's also the point. They just give this money to the Catholic head office and say, do with it as As you you will. We're not telling you which school to give this to. And that was one of the things... So what we've discovered over the years is that the Catholics often don't give the money to the poor struggling school. They they give it to the big-name schools and they actually advantage the rich Catholic schools at the expense of the poor Catholic schools. Yeah, and that's, so. you know, Gregory Terrace is a, is a prime example of yeah. that here in Brisbane. Yeah. You know, they, they've got money hand over the fist coming from the Catholic Education Office. Yeah. But, and, you know. And Scott Morrison says, oh, we're giving this extra money to help drought-affected families. Yeah. But you're giving it to the Catholic head office and they'll decide put where it's going to go. Wherever they like. Yeah. Mostly in the big wealthy metropolitan Catholics. Exactly. Go nowhere near a drought affected family. It's But it's the thought that counts. Yeah. It? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It really beggars belief that he's gone and done this. Yeah. You know, I I don't know what the hell they were thinking. When they, well, I know what they were thinking. They thought to themselves they had to extinguish this fire that Labor created. But, you know, they never actually prosecuted the argument, did they? They never actually pointed the finger at Labor and said, you've gotten to bed with the Catholics, where they should have really done that. They should have, they should have opened up the sectarian attack on them and said, you've gotten to bed with the Catholics. This is your problem. This is your fault, you know? The Catholic Church is playing them off against each other. Absolutely. And of course, Scott Morrison uh, is not a Catholic, but he's willing to buy the Catholic vote because he Mm. thinks, well, at least they're fellow Christians and Mm. they'll support me and my government because I'm an avowed Christian, perhaps. And and a lot of this money goes to the non Catholic. Yes. He'll uh, support the non Catholic uh, sector as well, of course. We've mentioned the Catholics because it may irk us the most on this issue. (laughs) 
But dear listener, when you're sitting around... Trevor's a former Catholic, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. <laughs> when you're sitting around the barbecue or the dinner table, you know, dinner party table and you're discussing school funding and you really, you're with some somebody and you really want to pull out a trump card, then you need to understand a little bit of the history and we need to talk about Goldman. And <laughs> yes. what we had was from Federation 1901 through to 1960... Uh, the tail end of the Menzies, it might have been late 50s, early 60s. When did Menzies? It was in the 60s, 60s when they started funding yeah. the Menzies yeah. was still in office then. Okay. Yeah. Between 1901 and the 60s, not a single cent went from the federal government into the private school sector. Not, not a single cent, dear listener. But there was a Catholic school in... Uh, Goldman and a lot of Catholic schools at the time were struggling. They had no money and their facilities were really poor and people were leaving, going to the private sector. And there was a, a nun in Goldman, Mother Celeste, and she was told, your toilet block is such that you can no longer operate the school with a toilet block like that and we're going to close you down. And, and you know what she did? I do. She pray, prayed to the Holy Mother. Well, and it worked. Her prayer was answered. Because, dear listener, M- Mother Celeste turned a dirty old Catholic toilet block into a billion-dollar industry, and this is how she did it. She said to the government, right, you can close the school down, but you know those other two Catholic schools in Goulburn that are okay? We're going to close them down as well. And you've suddenly got a 1,000 kids who have nowhere to go. In an, in an instant. And because of that, the government caved and gave them money for the toilet block and that was the thin edge of a wedge that's being rammed up our backside as we speak. <laughs> and it's awfully large, $4.6 billion wedge right now. That was the start of it, dear yes. listener. The Mother trickle Celeste. became a deluge. It did. And people will say to you, well, you know, the private school system is saving the taxpayer money. No, it's not. (laughs) They'll say, you know, the government pays a bit and we pay our private school fees a bit and that overall saves the government money. But here's the other trump card you need to play in this discussion, dear listener, is there was a study done of the Catholic schools in Goulburn today and the amount of money that we pay them. And if they were closed and they were instead public schools, the increase that we would pay annually would be an increase of 1% above what we pay them now. So we could be running public schools in Goulburn in replacement of those Catholic schools for just 1% extra. Now, people would say, well, they've built up, uh, you know, capital that's that's not, you know, you've got to take that into account that, uh, you know, they've, they've, they've built up this sort of capital and buildings and all that sort of stuff. But um, what you've got to recognise is that between 2009 and 2015, the Australian government spent $14.4 million on capital works in Catholic schools in Goulburn. Like, 
You can, you can build a lot of school for that. So we've funded the goddamn capital as well. They're not saving us money. They're dividing our society. It's unbelievable that we continue to do it. But I feel like an American with gun control that the nobody's listening. Yeah. It is absolutely the genie's out of the bottle. It is absolutely crazy that we've got this situation that has developed. It's evolved over God knows how many decades. I, I, I don't know how the hell it's going to ever be reversed back. But you know, I would love to see a situation where my old school becomes nationalised. It becomes a state school. Well, listen, mm. Howard yeah. had a good idea. Mm. Well, that he bought the guns back. Can't yes. we buy the schools back? Yes, they're just as dangerous. Yeah. Well, that's the whole point. You could buy them back. Yeah. So, Scott, yes. the solution, vote Greens, because they've come out <laughs> and they've said, they, they have. have come out and said this, all the things we're saying, yes. they've come out and said, we are going to try and stop this. Yes. So, Scott, is that, you know, for me, in terms of electoral issues, I reckon this is top of the tree for me. Like, well, top of the tree? Is that the good? Well, it's, it's a very important issue. I think I could vote Greens just on this issue. Yeah, okay. If you just want to if you just want to vote if you just want to vote on one issue, the Greens have got it. Mm. They've got that. Mm. However, on other things such as the date of Australia Day, for example, yeah. the Greens have lost it. Yes. <laughs> that, that's true. But this is very important. The other ones are incidental. I know that. Yeah. yeah. So this is the whole It could point. be a reason to vote green. It I could be a reason to vote green. However, you God knows what else you're going to get if you do vote for them. Yeah. <laughs> the thing I don't like about the Greens is the ideological conformity of the bloody Greens. <laughs> There's no perfect I mean, solution. But, but you're right. They're on, the, they're on the right side of this issue. Yeah. And credit to them for that. They're also against the TPP. Yeah, I noticed that. Trans-Pacific Partnership, mm. dear listener. Because of I've the been, infringement of sovereignty. Yeah, I'm not sure of their reasons, but apparently we're signing up to it and or we have. It's hard to keep track of it, but uh, we've been banging on about that for three years and the Greens have said they're against that as well. So school, private school funding and the TPP is probably enough to get my vote, I'd have to say. Do, and you, then su- do you suspect reference. the Greens have been listening to the podcast, Trevor? No, I don't think so. Well, one would hope not. Well, one would hope so, actually, because, you know. Let's hope they do. Mm. They might get some decent ideas. Mm. (laughs) So, um, right, next topic. Dear listener, at the end of the, well, in the last episode during it, we implored you to, um, oh, we've got to make a phone call. Uh, Let me interrupt, sorry, and... Let's see if we can get Woz on the line. So bear with me a second while we probably add this part out, but let's see how we go. Woz. G'day. It's Trevor, Hi. the Iron Fist. <laughs> good to talk to you. How are you? Pretty yes, good. Likewise. So Woz, you were nice. looking through the back catalogue, I think, and I get the feeling that you came across discussions that the twelfth man and I had about, you know, service by different people. Is that right? I did. That's correct. Yeah, I'm back to episode 110. Holy smokes, you're doing well. <laughs> <laughs> but do you work for a living? I mean, how do you get all the time for that? No, I'm retired, so I've got plenty of time up my sleeve. Ah, oh, there you go. Right. So in between all the other stuff, very good. So. 
And on the uh, Facebook, whatever it was, we, we were starting to get into a discussion and it was like a thought yeah. experiment. And I was thinking, oh, this is just too hard to do by message. So I thought the easiest way would be to do it the old-fashioned way by actually talking was. So yeah. So yeah. What's, yeah. what was the thought experiment that you had in mind or the, what were you thinking? Yeah, look, so where I'm up to with the episodes is um, just after the result in the uh, plebiscite mm-hmm. and um, you and the 12th man are having a very robust and healthy discussion uh, about um, religious freedoms and um, you're talking about, um, uh, we, we have a disagreement essentially about um, the rights of a, um, a cake maker to refuse service to a um, a gay couple yep. who uh, who is getting married and uh, yeah it's uh, it's a long and drawn out discussion and I'm sure some <laughs> listeners are over it but I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back up again. <laughs> so I love it when you guys disagree. Yeah. Um, yeah. You sort of drill down into issues a lot more, which is which is great. And uh, even when you don't disagree, when one of you plays the devil advocate, um, that's that's when I seem to learn the most. And um, uh, yeah, I find your, your your show very informative and and your your, your analysis um, uh, to be to be you know. Um, quite ad- advantageous because, uh, yeah, I'm interested in all this sort of stuff. So yep. I noticed during the discussion that with the, with the 12th man that um, you were proposing or put to him a lot of uh, hypothetical questions. Yep. But um, I, I don't think he, he put any back on you. No, probably, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> I'm, I'm about to get a hypothetical. <laughs> Yeah, did you did you provide any hypotheticals to Mr. Fist, twelfth man? No, I didn't. I didn't. It didn't occur to me to uh, throw it back at him. Do you have any good ones for him? I do. So um, I, 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 well, I, I hope it's a good one. I hope you think it's a good one. I, I I've tried to think of of a service that um, that you, Trevor, would. Um, uh, despise providing, and <laughs> uh, my my first thought was around um, male circumcision. Um, you being a doctor, and someone <laughs> coming to you with a religious with a religious uh, belief, a, mm-hmm. a, a Jewish person or, or somebody, um, and asking you to perform a, um, a a male circumcision, and I thought. Well, why not female circumcision? Let's up the ante. Yep. Um, so imagine you're a gynaecologist. Um, you're working in a remote area of Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just passed a plebiscite um, uh, that that says that um, you know on on religious grounds that a that a, um, a, a, a parents of a of a young girl can if they want to. Um, have their their five year old daughter uh, have have the the genitals of their five year old daughter um, mutilated? So we're saying it's um, legal. Yep. Yeah. What would you do? So when we were talking about these things, say with the shopkeepers, classically, it was mm. it was normally a situation where the shopkeeper offers a service to everybody and is refusing that service to a particular class of people. 
So, you know, the shopkeeper in the remote country town who was then going to refuse service to a, you know, a gay person or a black person. So they were instances mm-hmm. where it's a service that you commonly provided that you were then withheld, withholding from a specific class. So when it comes to circumcision, if, for example, I'm always performing female genital mutilation as a regular service mm-hmm. and somebody comes in and says, I want you to mutilate my daughter's genitals just like you mm-hmm. did for those other people and I happen to be mm-hmm. Islamic, then I would be compelled to do it. But mm. if I said, I actually don't perform that service for anybody and mm. so I'm not discriminating against you, it's just a service I don't do for anybody, then I'm in the, I can legitimately say that. Ah, right. That's the difference. Yeah. So it's, it's withholding a service. So when it came back to the cake um, masterpiece bakery th- sort of thing that was happening in the States gets a little bit hairy, a little bit complicated when we're talking about custom-made stuff where it got difficult. But, for example, if you had a bakery and you've got a bunch of cakes on the shelf ready to sell to anybody and somebody comes in and says, I'm gay and I want that cake sitting right there, then you can't refuse service. And the 12th mm-hmm. man agreed with me on that one. So his argument was more where it was a bespoke custom-made design that you were being required to produce as an artist uh, Mm. that you could withhold service. So um, so that's where it, it, it gets difficult to define what is bespoke and custom made when, and that's when I started using thought experiments like, okay, you've got a catalog, you can order a sponge cake or, or a mud cake or a ice cream cake and you can have this topping, that topping and you can have these words or those words and if it was a matter of just selecting from a bunch of um, multiple choice options then really the bakery had to provide those because they would do it for anybody. So so that was the sort of difference there. Warren, what do you reckon of that? Am I in the clear? Can I refuse the, the, the genital <laughs> mutilation on the basis that I don't do it for anybody? Yeah, no, look, I think uh, I, I accept that answer. That's, uh, that's um, I, I never actually thought about it in, in that way that, yep. uh, you know, the, the, the cake maker is refusing uh, service to uh, a particular class or a particular type of person or yep. a, a, a person. Yep, of something um, that they commonly provide is, is the key sort mm-hmm. of thing. So, yeah, so... So there we right. go. I'm in the clear. I can so is it, put my scalpel is there away. Any, is there any hypothetical situation in which you wouldn't provide service to a uh, particular class of person? Oh, um, I think in one of your previous discussions there was there was mention of um, you being a stonemason and uh, someone coming to you and asking for a, um, a religious statue to be made. But I, I don't think you actually answered the question. Yeah, I think I uh, Mm, uh, suggested that uh, a sculptor was asked by the local Catholic church to to carve a a crucifix or a Jesus on the the cross for for the grounds of their church and... 
Yeah. And the atheist sculptor said, well, I, I don't I, actually do I don't, that sort of I stuff. don't make crosses. So, or, or yeah. yeah. So I think if, if there was, um, yeah, yeah, I think that you could say that's not something I commonly do. Like you can't force an artist to make something that they don't commonly make. But if, if by chance they made crosses all the time for Christians and a Greek Orthodox came along and said, I want a cross as well, you've made it for all these other people, then mm. I would say the sculptor has to make the cross because that's a thing that you commonly make. And mm. so, yeah. So that, do you commonly make what the if, what, if, what if you made, what if you sculpted pieces that were similar but uh, not, not exactly crosses? Well, that's, you know, things can get hairy at that point. But the, the basic mm. proposition is do you make this or sell this thing all the time and are you refusing to do something that you would regularly do for other people just because it's a particular class of person that you're you're denying on this occasion? And then it turns on factual issues of, of how close it is to what you normally do and that, that could fall either way depending on circumstance. Yeah, okay. But that, that's the sort of general um, thing of, of, of treating people equally in terms of service for things that you normally provide. That's my theory I'm working mm. on. So there mm. we go. Okay. No, good. Yeah. No, good. Thanks for that. But I have to tell you that in the process of doing my research, um, I found some pretty shocking facts in terms of uh, female circumcision or female genital mutilation. Um, uh, in Australia or or overseas? Uh, just, just uh, well, uh, it's, it's mainly done overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I wasn't quite... Um, aware of how prevalent it was um, and I thought for sure that there'd be some sort of religious belief behind it or some written somewhere in some scripture that uh, recommends it but um, as far as I can tell um, uh, there's no religious scripts that prescribe the practice and it's obligatory only in the, and I'm, pro- I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, but the Shafi version of Sunni Islam. Yeah. So it's more of a cultural belief than a religious belief, yeah. the uh, so female some, genital mutilation. Yeah, some of those that, North African countries yeah, are actually Christian mm. uh, and they are performing the, mm. that um, mm. in there. But I think, um, I think Iceland and maybe some other countries have actually banned it for, for male circumcision. So I think it's oh, occurred in Iceland. Yes, I, I think, think Iceland right. might I'm be the one. Sure it's who, Iceland. That's fairly is, recent, yeah. though. Yeah. It? Banned, uh, recently banned male circumcision. So, yeah, yeah, um, so. Yeah. and there's often yeah. vigorous discussion on, on on a certain Facebook page that I frequent about male circumcision. Mm. Uh, some people defend it, and you know, on the basis that it's for hygiene, for male, you know, genital yeah. hygiene, and yet. The science mm. probably doesn't the, I don't stack know, up. But mm. most medical authorities don't defend mm. it, but I think only in the United States there's a, a, a medical association that does defend it on those grounds. But we suspect, mm. don't we, that that's because their their membership are largely traditional Christian or something like that. Don't know. Yeah, well, male circumcision is mentioned in the Bible. I... Um, I did a quick Google search on that, and it's mentioned uh, yeah. 
a, a number of times. Yes. But, um, yeah, but female circumcision should be really referred to as female genital mutilation because it's it's very dissimilar to yeah. um, my understanding. My understanding. They're just trying of, to control them. Hmm. Sorry, that's all right. Now, my understanding of female uh, genital mutilation is it originates in African traditions, you know, tribal traditions. Uh, pre-Islamic traditions and that the certain Muslim, majority Muslim countries seem to have adopted it because it's such an effective way of killing female sexual desire, you know, and it's a, it's an effective way of controlling female sexuality and, and in fact, you know, sort of chaining women to their, to their husbands mm-hmm. by, by not only uh, making, you know, potential extramarital sex uh, unpleasant for them, um, mm. you know what I mean? But they, mm. by removing the clitoris, which some of them do, they uh, severely limit female sexual response, you know. Yeah. So well, it's, a, my, it's a hideous my custom. Research, my research discovered that there are currently 200 million females alive oh, today yes. the that, statistics have, that have been horrific. cut. Mm. Um, in in thirty different countries, mm. um, the it's it's sort of that northern band at the top of Africa. Mm. Um, the the worst country is Somalia, where ninety eight percent of yeah. females and Egypt is not cut. far behind. Yeah, Egypt's uh, Egypt's up there. I think it comes in in the top ten. Mm. Um, it's not as prevalent in the Middle East. Um, places like Iraq are, have only got about an eight percent. Um, right. Um, but um, uh, what else? What else did I discover? The, the, one of the things that sort of shocked me was um, how slow the uh, World Health Organization were to react to it. Um, they, they, in fact, state on their, their website that um, uh, building on the work from previous decades. In 1997, uh, WHO issued a joint statement against the practice. So you'd wonder why it would take decades for someone, an organisation like WHO, to issue a statement <laughs> saying we don't, we don't approve of it. I suspect that the WHO, because they're probably their priority uh, in those decades and years was um, mass vaccination against preventable communicable, you know, um, contagious diseases, I, I suspect that they didn't want to get the governments of those countries offside by simultaneously demanding that they cease female genital mutilation. It's just in the too hard basket. Yeah. To get, to get all those countries hard. to yeah. agree is just in the too hard basket. Mm, you yeah. know, that's the problem. Yeah. Hey, was we've and got... wasn't it? Sorry. Sorry, was I was just going to say, we've got a stack to try and get through in this podcast. Yeah, no so... Um, yeah, thanks for your time. No worries. We'll, we'll wind this one up, but um, if you think of another thought experiment. Yes. Bring them on. Yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll try it Do out and see how guys. we go. Thanks, thanks for I'm listening. Doing, thanks for being a patron. Show. Thanks for all your support, and um, tell all your friends. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do. Keep up the good work, guys. Thanks, thanks very much, Wally. Okay. Well, see you. Bye. Dear listener, in the last episode, we... We implored you to write a letter to the editor of some, or well, the editors of some major Australian newspapers, 
basically to say to Scott Morrison, we know what you're up to and we're going to vote against you if you continue with this line of thought. So you've risen to the challenge. We had a great little discussion on the Facebook page with different people submitting their letters and uh, in the end, um, Bronwyn, um, who's a regular correspondent, uh, she got her letter published in two different places. Uh, the age was one and um, and there was one other place as well. I can't find it immediately. But um, congratulations, Bronwyn. You've, you've, you're our champion letters to the editor from that segment. And Scott, a friend of yours, Sue. Sue um, got hers published. She too. got hers published in the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, Sue's letter was to the editor, I'm writing to voice my concern over Scott Morrison suggesting we need new laws to protect religious freedoms. I see no need for this and can only see this will only lead to discrimination on the grounds of you can't work here, I'm not serving you because of your or my religion. In a secular society, you can follow any faith as long as you don't force your views onto others and it is illegal to discriminate against you. Nothing needs to change. This issue is the sole issue that will decide my vote in the next federal election. Good on you, Sue. Well done, Sue. Yeah. So I think I, I got the feeling, reading the comments, that people enjoyed the challenge. Absolutely. And, and Sue is sort of hooked. Yeah, she, she uh, yeah. wrote back and said that... Um that she's never written to the papers before, but since yes. she's been published now, she's probably going to start doing it on a weekly basis. Yeah. So well done, sir. Yeah, it is a good little challenge. Absolutely. And um, I know Bronwyn, uh, her partner also wrote to, a letter to the editor, but only Bronwyn was, was published. So <laughs> I think they've got a little bit of a battle happening there between them. So, <laughs> so dear listener, if you write anything in and you actually get it published, let us know. And even if you don't get it published... Send me a copy, and we'll publish it on our letters page on the uh, on the website. So it'll at least get published there. So thank you for everyone who gave that a go. And you know, one of the things I noticed, well, it caused me to start scouring through the various letters to the editors' pages, and the contrast between them is unbelievable. You know, and are you talking about the Australian between now? the News Corp papers, yeah, and the rest. And, you know, the, the News Corp ones were just full of ones saying, Scamo, the changes you're making are fantastic. I think you're turning the ship around and I think we've got them, you know, these sorts of letters. Whereas in the age and, and those, it was much more along the lines that we've been saying. It's, it's chalk and cheese, the difference between the different newspaper groups. You wouldn't think you're talking about the same person. No. It's, it just goes to show that the Murdoch empire is trying to throw everything they can at keeping ScoMo in office, mm. but I don't think it's going to work. Yeah. So, you know, with uh, our media being such an important part of our democracy, we're in huge trouble with the increasing disparity between the two of, you know, between essentially the Fairfax papers and yeah. the Murdoch um, papers. And as the media becomes increasingly digitised, if that's mm. the word, mm. uh, it could just get worse because, um, you know... It's not going to get better. It's not going to get better. And increasingly, if uh, the, the internet providers 
get the legal right to we were talking about this sensor yeah to, to 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 what is it to yeah. funnel or to control yeah that was the um net neutrality in net, neutrality. net neutrality that's yes it. so then, current dear listener net neutrality currently at the moment um internet providers cannot slow down or speed up the access to to different mm-hmm. websites the yeah. the pipeline has to be yeah. at the same speed going in and out of these websites, um, you, you can't discriminate. But so that's changed. Potentially, if these big media magnates get control of the internet providers, they can very much control the information that most people access. Correct. You would find that, for example, uh, now that that's been done away with in the US, that you know websites based in the US, um, if an internet service provider is controlled by the Murdoch empire, then they would crank up the speed going to and from Murdoch newspapers and slow it down going to mm. the competition and you know nobody likes hanging around waiting for a page to to load so these are all things that are going to happen fortunately um gentlemen we've got the ABC independent and uh Unbiased. I mean nobody would think of touching it would they no of course not the government would <laughs> <laughs> we I'm of course alluding to a couple of things uh Managing Director Shell Guthrie just got the sack and it seems that that was probably a good idea because she wasn't doing a great job reading between the lines. But in the process, she spilled the beans on the chairman, Justin Milne, who, it seems, had written to her and spoken to her demanding the sacking of a reporter, Emma Alberici. He has denied that, by the way. Um has he? Mm. I, I was when? Uh, I was following this on uh, the drum this afternoon. Now, and and in the ABC website, yeah, he has he has denied that he demanded sacking anybody, but he hasn't denied suggesting that it would be a good idea. He basically right. said something. So it like, wasn't a demand, but a should, suggestion. Yeah, should sh- which is more important that we save the ABC or or that we save Emma's job? In other yeah. words, let's let Emma go. Yeah, but he okay. has denied demanding right. anyone be sacked. So okay. we should put that on okay. the record. Thank you for that. Um, but the report from uh, Michelle Guthrie was that he demanded it. So where the truth lies, somewhere between those. If that is the case, that's extraordinary. Mm. That you would sell out the journalistic integrity of your organisation just because you thought the government was going to withhold money. That was the allegation that he had said this thing because he was fearful that the government would not provide the funding because they were just too angry with them. Or that he was sympathetic to the government's uh, agenda. Yeah, and he's made of Malcolm Turnbull's. He was appointed by Malcolm Turnbull. There you go. um, That's extraordinary if it's true. It's troubling. It's really worrying. So, you know, we have complained about the ABC over all sorts of things. Like it drives us bananas, Mm. but not for a moment suggesting you get rid of it. Like give it more money. It could be a lot worse. Give it more money. Honestly, we need an independent body like that. And that's what separates us from the United States of America. They don't have a proper public broadcaster that can provide that. 
communist China, yep. the Soviet Union, yep. where the media is very much controlled by yep. the government yep. and, you and know, not for, to the benefit of the general public of those mm. countries. It's one of the things that's helped them keep the UK on an even keel is the BBC. You know, mm-hmm. like it's an important thing to have. It's and very important, vitally the, important. The Fairfax group may not survive, so we, you know, goodness me, it's amazing that that could happen within the ABC. I find that incredible. So, well, Justin Milne this afternoon announced he was resigning from the mm. ABC board. So. Whether or not he was pushed, I don't know. But um, well, he, I think the, the all the negative publicity around him made his position untenable, didn't it? I would have thought so. Probably, yeah. yeah. You know, the good news is that the communications minister is Mitch Fifield, and he's a paid-up member of the Institute of Public Affairs, which is dedicated to closing the ABC. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the minister in charge of the ABC. He's also a member of the Liberal Party, is he? For God's sake, it's frightening. So um, I was reading this article, I've got a link to it, and the gist of it was that in the past, News Corp was a bit like the Catholic Church in that it would play the political parties off against each other and, uh, you know, get a deal from one and then go back to the other and say, give us a better deal and then go back to the first one and say, okay, and play them off against each other. That was Murdoch's, you know, way of operating. And this article is saying that News Corp now has gone so far to the right that they no longer play off against, you know, Liberal and Labor. And Labor doesn't even try to appease News Corp anymore. It just gives up. So someone will never going to satisfy these guys. So I think that's true. I think I think they've gone that far. That's pretty true. Absolutely. And what it was saying was that, you know, why have News Corp gone so far to the right? And there were a couple of reasons. We're talking about Australia here. Um, you know, it could be just it's Rupert Murdoch's personal views that are further and further right-wing, which is entirely possible. It could be that he's so keen on workforce deregulation that that one issue was enough to make him um, pro-liberal to the extreme. But the other one was that... In Australia now, Lachlan Murdoch is the guy in charge. And I, I put this to um, Mr. Blot from the Blot Report. I think I put it to him was, you know, what do you think is going to happen with the Murdoch press once Rupert passes on, if it's possible? I mean, it could be, it could be a vampire could who be a never just... could be a yes, that never dies. Yeah, yeah. it could be. He could be. Um, but assuming he will one day, then... You know, will the News Corp empire just lose that maniacal edge that it's got or or will it continue the way it's going? And this article is saying that Lachlan Murdoch is actually as, as bad or worse than his father. He's got very strong right-wing ideological ideas. He spent a lot of time in the United States of America um, listening to, you know, rabid Tea Party ideas. Fox News. And He's quite uh, conservative. And um, so it seems like there'll be no respite if are Lachlan Murdoch Are we Murdoch surprised is. by that? I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, do you expect that, you know, the, the, the younger members of the family to be somehow left wing? 
No, not, not left not wing. Left, but, but you wouldn't you wouldn't maybe. expect that you're going to be more right wing than your old man, though, would you? Apparently, the other brothers are not so bad. No, the other brother's actually quite normal. Really? He's, but, um, you know, Lachlan Murdoch is apparently a climate change skeptic, yeah. uh, well, a climate change denier. But his brother isn't. His brother is known for not James, is it? What's his mm. name? I think it might be James. James, is it? Okay. Um, is known for giving money and that sort of thing to environmental causes. Mm. Yeah. So um, in this article that I've got a link to, it says that this is talking about Lachlan Murdoch, that um, uh, – And he's the appointed successor. For the empire, isn't yes. He? Well, it's, there's a thing here that uh, Rupert Murdoch was interviewed by Sky News Australia. I hope my son Lachlan will be CEO. Rupert said in an interview just before Christmas on News News Corp owned Sky News Australia as he discussed the future of New Corp News Corp after the Disney deal. Mm. I have an idea. I think uh, after the old man shuffles off the mortal coil, maybe Lachlan and James could. Uh, you know, fight it out, pistols at dawn or something like that. That would be a nice right-wing American way of settling things, wouldn't it? It it could be. I don't think it'll come to that. But um, from this article it says, talking about Lachlan Murdoch, his wife Sarah launched Tony Abbott's autobiography. (laughs) That's a bad sign. The Abbott biography, Battle Lines, in 2009. And when Abbott's prime ministerial career came to an abrupt end in 2015... Lachlan was among 20 close friends, almost half of them from News Corp, who honoured him at the Australian Club in Sydney. And his relationship with Tony Abbott endures. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. Um, Bose of a feather? Looks like it. So, um, so it's going to continue by, by the looks of it. If- well, you know... It certainly appears that way, and if Lockie has earned anything, learned anything from the old man, you would imagine that he, you know, Rupert certainly seems to keep his editors on a tight leash, and if Lockie's learned anything from his old man, he's probably going to do the same thing too. Mm. So also in this article, it says that Sky News is morphing into a Fox News. Yeah, absolutely. So it used to have a niche as just a bit of a news-breaking service, and it was watched predominantly by political and business junkies. Um, But insiders say there's been a noticeable editorial shift that coincided with News Corp's acquisition of it. And during the day, Sky remains a breaking news service. Um, Its political editor, David Spears, enjoys a reputation as a searching and fair interviewer. So that's during the day. But the quote here is, Sky turns into a werewolf after dark, (laughs) says one political commentator who asked not to be named. And the transformation is happening earlier and earlier. And now they've got characters like... Peter Credlin and Andrew Bolt and Alan Jones, Ross Cameron and Paul Murray. There's, the a, six there's a cabal of werewolves for you. Yeah. And, yeah. On the, the drum this afternoon, one of the people on the panel was Donald McDonald is his name. He used to be on the ABC board, I think. 
And he made the point, somebody mentioned Sky News uh, in the evening in Australia. He said, actually, they call it news, but it's actually an opinion channel, not so much a news channel. It's, it's still news before dark. Yes, but after dark, after it's, dark, it's after just, dark, it becomes something entirely different. Well, he, I thought he made a very good point that and, it's not really about news anymore. No, and after and dark. Peter Credlin, she's a shocker. You know, she's absolutely appalling the yeah. way she carries on. The former deputy PM. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, 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 she. What did we used to say about executive assistants? We used to say to them, "We said, oh, there's a difference between being." an executive assistant and an assistant executive. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Now, Broman, who we mentioned before, who got the letter in the letters to the editor page and has been a regular correspondent, she sent me a link to an article and, you know, I was hooked at the title, which was, dear listener, (laughs) quote, I knew PM Scott Morrison at uni and he was a dickhead. Says a former Liberal Party insider who spills the beans on a zero-talent weirdo. <laughs> now, there's a headline that's destined to grab me. Oh, so in this article, which is from the True Crime News Weekly, never heard of them before, and... I uh, don't know what to make of them, but I, I, I'm fond of this article. Well, I thought that would be the case. I thought you'd be very fond of this article, <laughs> but I, I'd never heard of them either until I'd seen this one. Yeah, but it's a it's a one man operation, I think, isn't it? I don't know, but um, they're quoting a guy who um, is unnamed, but who admits to being the president of the University of Sydney's Liberal Club at the time of the events that he's descri- that he or she, I think it's a he we can safely say, mm. was describing. So don't give the name, but they say at the time that Scott Morrison was there, this guy that they're quoting was the president of the University of Sydney Liberal Club. And he's basically shocked that ScoMo has made it to the level that he's at. And he talks about the ScoMo that he knew in university days and says he was always very quiet and wouldn't say a word unless you spoke to him. He was shy and awkward. I thought he was just some lonely kid from uh, University of New South Wales who needed company. He never spoke to any emotions. He never got involved with anything. All he did was slink around our meetings. And it says here... uh, This guy, again, quoted saying, the fact he's gone on to become Prime Minister I find bizarre as he has zero charisma, zero social skills, zero anything. Nobody would have picked him as a future anything, the former Liberal Club president said. Mm. And he also described his his attire as being like that of an old man. Yeah. Which is neither here nor there, let's face it. No, but he sounds like a pretty dorky kid. Dorky, yeah. And not not much has changed. But... Essentially, how did he get from there to where he is at the moment? And the answer seems to be that he struck up a relationship with a liberal MP called Bruce Baird, Mm. the father of former New South Wales Premier Mike Baird and ABC commentator Julia Baird. So ScoMo's got in close with Bruce Baird, who's seen something in him. And he's managed to help get him onto different jobs that are closely associated with the Liberal Party. 
sort of in tourism bureaus. So a know-nothing, hopeless loner uh, ends up getting a $350,000 a year job that's quite high up in a, some sort of tourism commission, heads out to New Zealand again with contacts and comes back to Australia and he was in charge when it was the um, Where the Bloody Hell Are You campaign happened and that went down like a lead balloon and uh, <laughs> he had Keep to move mind, on. Bruce Baird is a, um, known to be a practising Christian so it could be the, the religious connection there. Yes, oh, absolutely a religious connection, absolutely. So that that is the connection and eventually then... Scott Morrison took over uh, Bruce Baird's previous seat in a fairly ugly pre-selection battle, and uh, well, there you go. He's um, he's now uh, in the position he's in. It's interesting. It doesn't take much; Very just a few. Um, well, it shows good job straight out of uni, and you're yeah. fine. Yeah, it yeah. shows how motivated. Uh, religious people are to 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 promote other religious people into positions of power and influence. Yeah, well, part of that dominionism that we've talked about. Mm. What do you reckon if you surveyed a bunch of Australians and asked them the question, would you support or oppose a new law enshrining religious freedoms? I don't know. I did see this question and I clicked out of it because I knew you liked to question me on this sort of thing. So. Right, yeah. So how many people would support, how many would oppose and how many don't knows when asked, would you support or oppose a new law enshrining religious freedoms? I'd say 60% would support, 30% would oppose and the remainder would be don't know. It was a bit less than I did glance at it, but it was in the forty-something um, percent. I think were in support of it, and okay. I think roughly thirty percent against something like that. But but there were there was quite a large proportion of don't knows too. Okay, twenty-something percent. I think wasn't it? total support thirty-seven, total opposed twenty-six, don't knows thirty-seven. Oh. Good on yeah. you. The Good on you, the don't knows, because that was a stupid question from the Essential Report. Would you support or oppose a new law enshrining religious freedom? Like, what does, it what mean? does that mean? It could have meant anything. So, you know, on suspicion, I'd say no, but a fair enough answer is don't know, because who knows what you're talking about? Like, that was a terrible question from the Essential Report. So, um, right. Still on Scott Morrison, Australia Day, and. He, you know, dog whistling, dog, dog whistling, would you say, or just rattling the cage or just beating the drum. I've got lots I think of. He's trying to have a bet both ways. Basically, complaining about the local councils that were not doing their citizenship ceremonies on Australia Day. And he. Uh, ran an idea up the flagpole to see how it would fly, which was, um, quote, I want to bring Australians together around this day. And that's why I've also said today that I'm very open to the idea of having a national day where we can particularly focus on the achievements and the success of our Indigenous peoples in a very positive way. In other words, I want to bring Australians together by creating two separate days, one for white Australians and one for 
Aboriginal, Indigenous peoples. Twelfth Man, what do you think of that idea? Well, I, I you know, I, I'm quite flexible on the idea of moving Australia Day, I have to say, because... Uh, yeah, he's not talking about two separate days. He's not talking about shifting Australia Day. Yeah, look, you know, I, I think a, a day to 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 recognise or honour our Indigenous people would probably be more meaningful than the Queen's birthday holiday, frankly. I mean, why do we have a holiday for the Queen's birthday? Well, I don't know, because not even the United Kingdom gets a day off for the Queen's don't birthday. They? No. Oh. You don't. We, we should let them know that we've had one for years and they've been missing out. But um, So you think that's a, a good oh. idea to have two separate days, 12 men? No, I think it's a bad idea myself. Look, <laughs> look I, as you know, I've spent some time in Japan and they have national holidays for a whole bunch of quite uh, flaky reasons, you know. Yeah, but uh, do they have it for one group of their population no, as opposed to that. another group? No, 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 no. So. Yeah, it does seem a little bit divisive. A little bit? A little bit. It's very <laughs> more than, divisive. More than a little bit, I suppose, yeah. Look, you know. I think that if the government is actually concerned about this, that they should move Australia Day. Now, I'm not wedded to the 26th of January or anything like that. Not either. I personally think we should go with Australia Day being the first day of the year because that is, mm. you know, New Year's Day was the first day of Federation. 1901. Yes. Yes, Indigenous people still weren't counted until 1967, so maybe you could have the um, 1967 referendum day maybe become Australia Day. Maybe that would be more fitting. Exactly. But it's, I think that it's more than just a little bit divisive. Mm. I think it would be extremely divisive. Yeah. Well, as you know, I've, you know, I have, have views about uh, the... Uh, Overblown claims made about our indigenous people's culture. You know, they people want to build it up as something amazing. You know, there's sixty thousand years of of Stone Age uh, cultural existence, and people want to call it civilization, which it isn't. People want to, you know, celebrate it as the most successful continuing culture, and yet. I mean, the way Indigenous Australians live these days is not the way they lived for 60,000 years, for goodness sake. I mean, we could make the same claim about ourselves. I want to celebrate uh, 100,000 years of Irish culture or, you know, 200,000 years of German culture. Of course, they weren't Irish and German, but you know what I mean? People have been living in those, those parts of the earth for probably that long. And I'm descended from them. Why can't I claim that I want a day to celebrate, you know, 200,000 years of Neanderthal, Neanderthal come German culture or whatever? I mean, they're deluded if they think that contemporary Aboriginal culture is the same culture as existed prior to European settlement. It's, it's a very different culture. And um, I, I think there's a lot of... Um, People, people are talking about one thing uh, when it's something completely different. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think, Fist? Well, I think we need to let Morgan Freeman talk about this issue as he has so eloquently in the past. So, dear listener, we, we had our Morgan Freeman impersonator, <laughs> Smiley Al, 
you know, do our intro for a long, long time before we actually discovered this particular comment from Morgan Freeman, which is very applicable for where we are on this topic. Black History Month you find ridiculous. Why? You're going to relegate my history to a month? Oh, come on. What do you do with yours? Which month is white history month? No, well, no. well, come on, tell me. Well, uh, I'm Jewish. Okay, which I'm month is Jewish History Month? Uh, there isn't one. Oh, oh, why not? Yeah. You want one? No, no, no. I, 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 I don't either. I don't want a Black History Month. Black history is American history. How are we going to get rid of racism? And stop still- talking about it. I'm going to stop telling you a white man. I'm going to ask you to stop calling me a black man. I know you as Mike Wallace. You know me as Morgan Freeman. Oh, Morgan. I mean... Spot on, Morgan. He was spot the, on. The words are perfect. Mm. And with the Morgan Freeman voice to go with it, mm. it's magnificent. Oh. It's no accident you chose the Morgan Freeman impersonator as the was, intro for the program. It was fortuitous, wasn't it? Yeah. So there you go. Mm. What? He distilled it, didn't he? Mm. He doesn't want it. No. How many Aboriginal First Nations people actually want it as well? How many? Who knows? It's a racist concept to be dividing us up like this. If if you are in, you know, if you are agreeing with us about schools and how it's divisive, then you should be agreeing with us on this sort of issue. It's mm-hmm. divisive. Mm. A national holiday, if you like, to celebrate us and we're going to go, well, actually, we'll celebrate this subgroup and that subgroup can celebrate on a different day and, oh, let's let the Jews do it on another day and let's let Pacific Islanders do it on another day. Can I now issue a retraction on my previous waffling about a separate day for (laughs) Indigenous Australians? Is that right? Morgan Freeman convinced you. Oh, look, I I think I was just trying to be... um, Conciliatory, you know, to our indigenous people, because I'm not, I'm not unsympathetic to their, to the plight of many of them who do still live in appalling conditions. But you know, I think as we've discussed before, it's not entirely unrelated to their culture. Mm. What's the name of that Aboriginal lady that you've got me onto in Alice oh, Springs? Yeah. Jacinta yes. Nampajimpa Price, or it's, yeah. it's a bit more complicated than that, yeah. but Jacinta Price for short. Yeah, yeah. With, yeah. With, she had a very good um, cartoon that she put up on Facebook, which is a couple of Indigenous kids sitting out under the tree and that sort of stuff, and along comes Richard D. Natale and he says, he says, oh, we've got to shift the day, and this little kid puts up his hand and says, oh, I think we've got bigger issues than that. You know? <laughs> and I think that's right, is that Indeed. we do have bigger issues than that. Yeah. Mm. So Morgan Freeman, he speaks well. Another person who's often spoken well on this podcast over the years has been David Marr. Yes. Who's come out with some great stuff over time. And he has... Um, coming to the news lately in relation to a literary award. And why is it that writers' conferences and literary awards are where you find these left-wing issues of 
victimhood and cultural appropriation and all the rest of that we literally awards and and writers festivals are hotbeds Mm. for these things and uh, there's a link here to an article by David Marr where he said I woke up on Saturday morning to strange news in the Australian I mean there's always strange news in the Australian but but, (laughs) but anyway it's particularly strange the rules of the Horn Prize named after Donald and run by the Saturday paper, had been changed. I've judged the prize a couple of times and was due again in 2018, but not after what I saw on Saturday. So it's a $15,000 prize for a 3,000-word essay on who we are and how we live in this country. He said it's, you know, it's been a good success over the years, but he said without warning the judges, or without warning the judges, Jensen, the guy who organises it, decided to radically narrow the rules and issued a list of what Horn Prize was not seeking or accepting, namely, quote, essays by non-Indigenous writers about the experience of First Nations Australians, essays about the LGBTQI community written by people without direct experience in this community, and any other writing that purports to represent the experiences of those in any minority community of which the writer is not a member. David Marr said, well, I've been a critic of these sorts of things over the years. Men, this is David Marr, men can write about women, gays about straights, blacks about whites. You judge as always by quality. It's likely to be higher where there's direct experience but you can't disqualify for lack of it. And if we're not going to accept whites writing about Indigenous experience, how can we have whites judging Indigenous writing? So he said, I quit as a judge. Good, Good for on you. David Ma. Yes. It's about time we saw more people standing up for principle. These are the sorts of issues that we've spoken about, Scott, over the years that were bubbling away in America, mm-hmm. and they've arrived on our shores with a vengeance. Exactly. And David Marr is not a, um, he's not a, uh, he's not afraid of controversy or anything like that. And he is also, he's also a gay man, you know. And he's been very good at pounding the religious Absolutely, the yes. Yeah. He's been very good. So, And he's just given it to them on and, this one. And this one, he, he, you know, you would expect that, um, given what I've just outlined, that he'd be in favour of this, but he said, no, this is nonsense. So well done, David. Yes. Yeah, very well done. And he's not the only one. Anna Funder also withdrew from judging. Right. My understanding is that they ditched these rules. They didn't. Correct. Yes. So they've actually now um, announced they've changed their mind and uh, either are going back to the old way or they've yet to announce what they're doing. But, Yeah. yeah, it's... And they've extended the deadline. Right. So, well, twelfth man, are you tempted to write a three thousand word essay on 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 you know uh, on a First Nations sort of experience <clears throat> just for the quite see if you can get away with it? Yeah, I'm I'm just not sure I have the literary talent to right. win with fifteen thousand bucks, but I wouldn't mind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, on this sort of topic, we've previously spoken a lot about um, Lionel Shriver because she was the one who got in to an argument at the Brisbane Writers Festival. Where with our, our old friend <laughs> Jasmine walked out. Jasmine Abdelmadjid <laughs> walked out. 
because Lionel Shriver was saying exactly this. Exactly this. That as a writer, particularly a writer of novels, of fiction, you, of course, can write whatever you want. That's the whole point of writing fiction is to explore these sorts of things. But Lionel Shriver's crime was not being a POC. Person of colour. Yeah. So, you know, how dare she have the temerity to presume she has a um, a right to write about anybody other than mm-hmm. so-called white people? Anyway, Spiked Magazine has a podcast now Love with Brendan. I know you do with Brendan O'Neill. His very first guest is guess who? Uh, Jasmine. <laughs> <laughs> Lionel Shriver. Terrific. When they talk about this issue. So if you want to hear a really good discussion, Lionel Shriver is sharp. She's yeah. so good. Yeah. You've, and, you've read her some of her oh, books. The book, you? The Mandibles, which I lent to Scott and I gather he hasn't finished yet. I haven't finished yet. It's very good though. But it's well written. She's sharp and her articles are spot on. And it's, so it's a really good podcast. Look that one up. Uh, I think it's called The Brendan O'Neill Show or something, but, you know, Google it and find it. It's It's out there. But... In the that Spike conversation, podcast, I, found, is that uh, I think it might be called the Brendan O'Neill. Brendan O'Neill show. Yes, That's there it, it is. Yeah. yeah. So definitely you'll love that one, 12 Men. Mm. Anyway, in that, she makes a really good comment about this whole identity um, issue. And she said, one's sense of self, I'll start that again, one's sense of self should be more profound than just whether you're female or your skin colour. Because she said those things are just chance. They're, they're pure chance. And, you know, there's so much of a spectrum of what it is to be female encompasses all sorts of things that it's sort of meaningless that we've spent decades trying to escape boxes and now we're putting people back in them. Yeah. Whatever but, happened to the ideas of... Universal, you know, humanity. Yes. That we're all human. Yes. Regardless. And look, I have a problem with this, this, this term that still I hear a lot of people who should know better using, which is person of color. I mean, mm-hmm. we're all people of color. Even people with albinism are people of some sort of color. They're a little on the pink side, but. You know, this idea that somehow people of European or Northern European ancestry, because perhaps Italians, you know, are sort of halfway to colour, um, you know, pe- people of colour. It's it's a ridiculous idea that somehow Europeans don't have any colour and everybody else in the world has colour. I've, I've seen plenty of people from East Asia who are paler in skin tone than I am. Mm. You know what I mean? It's just a ridiculous, meaningless classification. Yes. It, you know, it's such a chance thing to just hinge your yourself but it's, and to place so much importance yeah. on a, a chance and meaningless thing as, but it's a, also as a, a lie some of your because, genetic code. Yeah, it's a lie because, as I said, mm. some people of East Asian ancestry mm. have really, really white-coloured skin mm. and yet they're classified simply because they're not European as people of colour. Mm. It's a complete lie. It's a, it's a nonsense. Well, on this score, our old friend Canon Malik mm. wrote a very interesting article about this sort of stuff where um, he said 
quoting from it. Until about five years ago, Ralph Taylor did not consider himself black. He lived as a white man and was seen as such by friends, colleagues and clients. In 2010, he took a genetic test that estimated his ancestry to be 90% European, 6% Indigenous American and 4% Sub-Saharan African. Four years later, he applied for his insurance business to be certified as a disadvantaged business enterprise to make it easier to win government contracts. He was turned down. Officials could not find persuasive evidence that he'd personally suffered social and economic disadvantage by virtue of being a black American. So now he's suing the US government because he considers himself to be black based upon DNA evidence. Today, by any rational definition... Uh, Taylor is by any rational definition white and the attempt to have himself officially declared black seems little more than a money-spinning exercise. Yet, absurd though his claims are, his case speaks to our times. <laughs> Does indeed. Good luck to you, Taylor. Like, this is the thing. If if the point is skin colour without, without reference to circumstance, well, you qualify, mate. Indeed. And we've seen this happen in Australia with people who are doing quite well in their lives, you know, successful careers and every, and what have you. And there's a box on the form that says, do you identify as uh, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander? Why wouldn't they tick the box if it's available to them? Mm. So Kennan says the idea that DNA tells us something fundamental about our social identity and sense of belonging has become embedded. And in, 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 in short, he says, well, that, why should it? Um, uh, this desire to link genetic inheritance to your social heritage and to your contemporary identity. It makes no sense. No, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love this line here. Today, the struggle against racism is defined as much by a desire for identity and recognition as by a demand for equality. Mm-hmm. I think he's hit the nail right on the head. Yes, I like that too. Mm-hmm. And this idea of stay in your lane has become a favour demand of anti-racists, meaning do not interfere with what rightfully is in the domain of other racial or cultural groups. Oh, and part of this whole cultural appropriation thing has been poor old Jamie Oliver put up a recipe for jerk rice, which I think was some sort of Caribbean-style thing, and people thought, what are you doing? You have no cultural Cultural right. appropriation. Cultural appropriation for a recipe for jerk rice, for goodness dear, sake. Dear. Yeah. So were we not allowed to cook curry at home and call it curry anymore? No, no. Right, uh, final thing, because we're going way over time here. <laughs> Easy to do. Bettina Arndt, before we get... Sorry, Scott, you've got your favourite too. Oh, go on, get it out of your system. Tony Abbott, go on. Tony Abbott. Okay, this is from the Daily Mail, dear dear listener. Everybody wants to see him go. Tony Abbott comes very close to losing his seat of 25 years as party members stage a revolt during a heated electorate meeting. Now, ladies and gentlemen, why this is great fun for me is that the former Australian Prime Minister was blindsided when he reportedly received only 55% of the party's votes during a heated pre-selection meeting in the Sydney electorate of Warringah. Warringah. Um, That was against an empty chair. So that meant Mm. that 45% of the members of the Liberal Party in that seat were prepared to vote for anybody but him. 
had a decent moderate put their hand up and said, I'll challenge him, I reckon they would have got the gig. So that says to me that the moderates in the Liberal Party are not dead. They're under a lot of pressure, Scott. They're under a lot of pressure, I know, but they're not dead. (laughs) They're not dead, but the the hole's been dug. They've been tossed in and the the first clumps of soil... (laughs) Are landing on their forehead. Mm, better analogy. <laughs> and they like, oh, I'm not dead yet. Yes, you are. The, the Catholics and the Mormons and the, and the, and the Pentecostalists are saying, yes, you are. Shut up. Uh, Get well, back down we, there. We'll have to wait and see because, well, like I said, you know, the, the Christians may take the party over. They may win once, but they'll be out on their ass for a generation. Mm-hmm. I know. No, no, wait. Right, time to thank our patrons starting at the top. Uh from the earliest days and working our way through to the most recent. Patrons, I'm feeling I'd like to start using last names because we get a lot of people with the same first names. And so fair warning, um, in about... How about a first initial of last names? Well, you how about we... respect their anonymity? How about we do this? You can always go onto Patreon and put in a nickname of some sort and change it. So I'm giving you like three or four weeks, plenty of time to do it. And I already know about a couple of people like the beneficiary in the squeaky wheel. So it's really easy just to go into Patreon and change your name to a nickname if you're not happy with your surname because we have a few people with the same name. So anyway, thank you, Sean, Alex, Janelle, Craig, John, Jastingers, Platt, Cam, um, Landon Hardbottom. Wayno, oh Landon, I that was so funny last week. Thanks, mate. Um, <laughs> Grant Wayno, Ayame, thanks Ayame. Brett, the beneficiary, Allison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Watley, Jimmy, Spud, Kane, Bronwyn, Matt, J, Robbie, Dean, Rod, Palais, Maddock, Man, Warren, Dominic, Liam, Dave, Squeaky Wheel, and new patrons coming in this week: Daniel and Harry. And actually, there was a good message. Um, I think it might have been from Daniel, who's gone as another name of Maverick452, who gave us a five-star review on iTunes. I think it's the same person. If not, anyway, Maverick452 said, having stolen the requisite 23 episodes of this strangely compelling podcast, (laughs) I have decided to support them by subscribing. The differing views keep me interested, even when disagreeing with the speakers. Good guests also help. As the only paid-up member of the ALP who listens, I will keep an ear out for any subterfuge. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> so um, thank you, Maverick0452, which um, maybe you're not Daniel. You might be – oh, I don't know. Anyway, um, log in at some stage and give yourself a pseudonym if you want to remain anonymous in about three or four weeks' time. Plenty of warning. Right, a uh, couple of final things that we need to get out of the way are um, Bill Hayden, <laughs> famous I know. atheist, it made famously no an atheist, has come out where he's been baptised. Oh. He's clearly uh, lost it, hasn't he? At the age of 85, 85. at St Mary's oh, that's, Church, that's Ipswich. Um, 
He's quoted here as saying, there's been a gnawing pain in my heart and soul about what is the meaning of life. What's my role in it? He said, this took me too long and now I am going to be devoted. From this day forward, I'm going to vouch for God. He suffered a stroke in 2014. It's sad. It's really sad. It's a sign of, um, you know, cognitive decline, isn't it? Serious decline. Well, is this the same man who said, um, I'm quoting here, this is from, there'll be a link in the website, Hayden, the Governor-General of Australia from 89 to 96, has made it clear many times that he is an atheist. He was awarded the honour of the 1996 Australian Humanist of the Year. In Australian Humanist, the magazine, uh, in the issue number 41 of February 96, uh, they said the award is made because he has shown that an avowed atheist who describes himself as a secular humanist could occupy the position of Governor-General with mounting approval. That's why he got the award. And in his acceptance speech, um, Hayden is quoted as saying, to be a humanist, one has to exercise free will, to reason, to be rational, to avoid being the slave of some defunct ideology or the disciple of received wisdom. And later he says, being an atheist as I am is not a necessary precondition for being a humanist. Is that the same man who post-stroke? Well, that's the whole point. You know, it, <laughs> what, what, is this, is this is it, is, elder is abuse? Stro- like, what, is what, it a what? stroke or whatever it is? I, I can't work it out because, you know, it, it, it makes no sense to me that he would do this. However, he's done it. So one's got to assume that he's in control of himself and he just do, do what, do, does, it, does what he wants. But I can see that Paul's got a very pained look on his face. So. <laughs> uh, to me, it's, it's a symptom of um, cognitive decline. I mean, fear of death, perhaps. I don't know. But mm. The religious would say that as he's nearing death, he's yeah. come to think about it more closely yeah. and has come to a, a realisation that he hadn't come to before. He's that's clearly, what, that's clearly would, not the person that he used to be. I don't know. I mean, because I'm playing I've, devil's advocate here. Mm. Yeah, but see, I've seen my mum get close to death, and she when she died and all that sort of stuff. And you know, she didn't want to die, and she fought against it. And it made no sense to me because she was allegedly a Christian and that sort of stuff. You'd, you'd think to yourself, well, wouldn't you be looking forward to dying? But go to heaven, exactly. And you know, my old man, since she's passed and that sort of stuff, he's become a late in life atheist. You know, so no one's getting any younger, but, and I've seen it before with older relatives as they've got closer to dying and that sort of stuff, they've really started to question everything they've believed all their life. See, the religious would say, oh, there's no atheists in the foxholes, you know, and that's the Bill. what's happening with Bill Hayden here is he's, you know, seeing his the end, he's, he's come to realise God's presence. No, he hasn't. Mm. He's just, sadly, um, he's afraid of dying. Well, I mean, considering the Mormons baptise people after you die, then we've we've the all Mormons got Mormons are a bunch of. I know, I mean, we're, 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 we're all right though because we're all going to be baptised by them. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> mm. look, we're way over time, but I can't help myself. I've Go got ahead. to tell you the story of Yuval Noah Harari. Oh, yes. Did I tell you? 
on on my drive back from Sydney, I um, because my car audio is fucked up. Mm-hmm. Excuse language me. warning. Language. We do have an explicit yeah. warning on yeah. this podcast, Look, so it's open um, to us to. Yeah, um, my my, my car audio is is stuffed. So mm. I listened to Sam Harris podcasts all the way from Sydney to Brisbane, mm. and one of them was with Yuval Noah Harari. It was outstanding. It's a cracker, isn't it? Yeah. Outstanding. And I thought, wow, why haven't I listened to this guy and read his books, which you've recommended to me? Indeed. Sapiens, which dealt with the evolution of mankind through to today. Homo Deus, which looked at the future. And now he's written one, which is more about the sort of present day issues um, facing us. And I'm not sure of the name of his current book, but it might come up in reading this article. So I've got a link to an article um, where in The Guardian. And what he's saying is that the liberal story, by liberalism, we're talking about freedom of the individual is, is the notion rather than the Liberal Party of Australia. So it's, it's that sort of liberal or almost libertarian sort of view of life in the in the freedom of the individual as, as the primacy thing. As a, we have free will. We should be able to exercise it, um, minimal control over individual choice. That, that's what we're meaning by liberalism. And he's saying that that doesn't tell the full story of humanity and we need to go beyond that. Uh, he's hoping that liberalism can reinvent itself but there's a challenge that is emerging from laboratories. So um, he said liberalism is founded on the belief in human liberty, that human beings are supposed to have free will. However, free will, dear listener, as we've discussed with Cam Riley and other people, is not a scientific reality. It's a myth inherited from... Now, this is the interesting part. Um... I hadn't heard this line of thought before, but this idea of free will, he's saying, is a myth inherited from Christian theology. Theologians developed the idea of free will to explain why God is right to punish sinners for their bad choices and reward saints for their good choices. If our choices aren't made freely, why should God punish or reward us for them? So, dear listener, as we move forward in, you know, this sort of these ideas of free will and that it doesn't really exist, we're going to get a huge backlash from the religious groups because it totally undermines the basis of of punishment for your deeds if you don't have free will. Anyway, it goes on. Uh, you know, this myth of free will has little to do with what science now teaches. Humans have will, but it isn't free. You can't decide what desires you have. Every choice depends on a lot of biological, social and personal conditions that you cannot determine for yourself. I think we're all, uh, the three of us, in agreement on this is probably the case at the moment, as uncomfortable as it may seem. It is very uncomfortable for me too because I do do like the idea of free will. Yes. But... Science tells us... The more I read, the more I'm beginning to question it. Mm. So he says that free will was... Uh, always a myth, but in previous centuries it was it was a quite helpful one to have. So emboldened people who had to fight against the Inquisition 
and the divine right of kings and the KGB and the KKK, it was relatively little harm in believing that your feelings and choices were the product of some free will. So um, now the belief in free will, though, is becoming dangerous. If governments and corporations succeed in hacking the human mind, the easiest people to manipulate will be those who believe in free will. So um, in order to successfully hack humans' minds, he said you need two things. You need a good understanding of biology and you need lots of computing power. And obviously computing power is increasing. So the ability of others to, to work out our minds is becoming increasingly possible. And it doesn't have to be perfect it just has to be better than our own control of our own minds. And that's not too hard because it just seems that most of the time we don't know why we do the things that we do. And these algorithms that are being developed arguably are starting to understand us better than we understand ourselves because they don't come burdened with all of the biases and hopes and dreams and aspirations. They're far more cold and calculating and I think I read something once that um, once the algorithm that had seen what you'd liked on Facebook 300 times, it knew you better than any of your friends except perhaps your life partner. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, it could shit. determine your preferences better than any of your friends except for your yeah. life partner on the basis of 300 likes. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's scary, isn't it? It is, but it's entirely possible. And if it's not 300, if it's 1,000, whatever, we're, we're working towards that point. And where we may think we actually like something, the algorithm will say, actually, you don't, my friend. I know you better than you know yourself. Mm. Mm. So, um, so what it's saying is that the capacity for... Um, for powerful interest groups to manipulate us is just increasing and we need to ex- understand that we don't have the free will that we thought we had if we are to fight in any way against being manipulated. We have to accept that situation. So that's true. Um, so we've got to accept that we have no free will in order to utilise free will. In, in order to understand that other powerful groups are going to take advantage of us potentially for their own benefit. They're going to take advantage of our lack of free will to manipulate us. So we need to be aware of that. I mean, if you want them to do that, then just keep going. Yeah, okay. I yeah. think. Hmm. Um, I'm paraphrasing a lot here. Um, but he's saying that, you know, when you said earlier, when I asked, do we all agree that free will is a myth? And you said, oh, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea. I don't really want to admit it, but it's probably going to have to. And he says here that it's actually, it actually, if you accept it, it gives you a new kind of freedom. Um, you realise that our thoughts and desires don't reflect our free will, it can help us to become less obsessive about them. 
So when you have a thought or desire, you can go, well, that's interesting. I've suddenly got that thought or desire. Where um, did that come from? Where did that come from? And if I don't actually act on it, it's not that important because it was just generated through random events. It's no big deal. I'll just take it easy on that. I don't have to do it just because it's my own thought or desire. Okay. It's, it's a certain <laughs> kind of liberation. It is a type of liberation. Yeah. Um, so we'll be less preoccupied with our thoughts and desires. And um, uh, he says here, now some people would argue that if we renounce our belief in free will, we will become completely apathetic. Like you could say, well, why would I act on anything or do anything because it's just some random neurons firing off in my head. I should just, I could just ignore all of it. But he said, if you actually start to pay less attention to your own thoughts, you'll pay more attention to other people's thoughts. And it's a bit like a conversation with, if all you want to do is get out what you want to say, then you really don't take in what the other person is saying. So you actually will learn more. Yes, you're more open to the world around you, in effect, aren't you? Mm. So it can kindle a kind of profound curiosity. Mm. Um, He says, once you realise this, he says, quote, hi, this isn't me, this is just some changing biochemical phenomenon. Then you also realise you have no idea of who or what you actually are. (laughs) This can be the most exciting journey of discovery any human can undertake. Wow. Um, So getting back to the topic of um, how do you live when you realise you are a hackable animal, that you're so easily influenced potentially? Um, uh, The next thought that emerges in your mind might simply be the result of some algorithm that knows you better than you know yourself. Um, um, Instead of revelling in free will, lots of people are retreating to find shelter in old illusions such as religion and nationalist Mm. fantasies. And tribal identities. Mm. And he said that... um, uh, Engaging in things like the Bible and the sanctity of nation become just a terrible waste of time. Anyway, um, what do you need to do? You need to fight on two fronts simultaneously. Defend liberal democracy because it places the fewest limitations on debating the future of humanity. And at the same time, uh, develop a new political project that is better in line with the scientific realities and the technological powers of the 21st century. Well, develop a new way of thinking. Who That's, knows what that is? Yeah, a That's a bit of a motherhood project. I, mm. I wonder what form that might Well, well this is the one where, Twelfth Man, you and you, I've accused you, perhaps unfairly, <laughs> of being a libertarian yes. where the freedom of the individual choice yeah. and and really what he would be saying this article is, well, you are the whole basis of that line of thought is flawed to some extent and it's relying on something that doesn't exist. So it's time to start at least thinking about a new way of thinking. Yes. Look, you know. I'm, mm. I'm not really a libertarian. I think you'd agree. Oh, I, yeah. I just like the idea of liberty. Yes. And f- Yes. But anyway, very interesting thoughts very interesting. in all of that, I reckon. 
Yeah. Yes, very, very stimulating stuff. Mm. Absolutely. It's still a little frightening. Mm, it is. Mm. Right. Well, that was a long one. My wife's going to kill me for that episode. It's <laughs> way too long. Does she so listen to all of them? She does, but oh. she really gives it to me when it goes oh, over an hour, so dear, I'm just I'm in trouble. Look, I think you have to liberate yourself from that sort of constraint, you know, that I, sort of browbeating. Yeah, perhaps I could explain to her that really the thought that she's got that it's too long is just some random neurological yeah. firing happening in her brain That's and to right. pay no attention to that. To that. And so encourage we're going to be recording this at my place next week, are we? So. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we've got guys like Woz who are into it. And, Indeed. Yeah. Uh, and look, if it's too long for some people, we'll just... Uh, Turn it off. New, new patron Harry said, you know what, Trevor, sometimes they're too long. I said, well, just stop listening if you can't, if you can't get through it all. It's, for those it's, who want to listen, keep going. Divide like, them too. Yeah. yeah. It's like people who say, you know, a certain kind of program shouldn't be on the television. Yeah. Change the channel. Yeah. Switch it off. Yeah. <laughs> well, dear listener, did you make it through to the end? Have we gone too long on this one? Let, a, let us know. Give us your feedback. <laughs> Give me some support. If you think we should have gone for three hours, <laughs> lodge a comment in the comment section. Love to hear from you. Until next time. <laughs> Good night and goodbye. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye now. See you, everyone. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fizz Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation, so you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.